Turkey hunting is one of my favorite things. And one of the key tools I use for turkey hunting is the Onyx Hunt Map. I use it incessantly when I'm hunting turkeys. Being able to find a new piece of public or gaining permission on private opens up opportunities for gobblers. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you this spring. Use the code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt. You'll find more birds this season. I'm telling you, I rely on Onyx Hunt when I'm hunting turkeys. It is an invaluable turkey hunting tool. If you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the Black Buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by First Light, creating proven, versatile hunting apparel from merino base layers to technical outerwear for every hunt. First Light, go farther, stay longer. Okay, everybody, we're coming from... uh, Downtown Haley, Idaho. The first time ever in the new First Light store. Well, now we, if you haven't picked up on this in the past, we will record, and then and then we usually record and then le- release the episode like some time later, at at Corinne's whim. So we find ourselves in one of these issues where there's like a um, there's our reality and your reality, and our reality is not open yet, but in their reality. To everybody who thought this show was live, your dreams have just been crushed. Oh, they know. <laughs> In their reality, it's open. My wife's been trying to explain this to me because my wife's hip on this uh, new idea about how no one's actually right or wrong. Um, because uh, Well, that's wrong. I, <laughs> that I can't really true. explain it. She's trying to explain it to me. It has something to do with how big the cosmos is, and there's a lot of ways of looking at stuff around the cosmos, you know? So she's telling me that all the things that we're adamant about are just like... um. Like, we're adamant about stuff, but it's just like this little teeny... Like, imagine you have, like, dust in the air, right? And there's sun shining on it. Your ideas are just one of the many little places where light hits the dust. Like, but um, that, see, do you follow me? No, I told her it's yeah. stupid. Yeah, because it doesn't work in real life. <laughs> yeah, if, she, if you weren't going to say how stupid I was, because it doesn't work for real life. It's like, yeah, well... Maybe noon isn't noon somewhere else, but for here, it's like 
you just got to accept that it's noon but or one thirty. That's a terrible example for today, Sean. Because <laughs> it's, it's actually tomorrow. We were at, what's funny is we were, she's, she's laying this all out on me. We were up at this little, this little inholding we have. It's like this little five acre inholding and, and my buddy has the one next to mine. And on his place is this old, probably like, I don't know, man, like a giant water tank. In the past, someone was going to bottle some spring water up there. So there's like this giant water tank, and we'll climb up on the water tank, and you can watch for trout down in this beaver pond. But the water tank's yellow. And I'm standing on the water tank with my boy, debating with my boy whether or not like I'm going to haul the water tank out of there and make a hog roaster out of it. To which he thinks um, it's a good place to stand and look off of. And meanwhile, not even we're like having an argument about the water tank, and she's not even paying enough attention to us, and she's laying this thing on me about how our things are nothing. <laughs> wow, this all <laughs> like happened the hog at one tank's time. not even there. Yeah, and so I told her, but where does that leave you? I'm not going to run around acting like I don't think what I no. think because it's like a little dust particle. Yeah, no, you got to go through it like it's all logical and rational yeah it's just one of those ideas it doesn't have any uh i like it but it doesn't it just doesn't change anything for me yeah if you're she's idea, trying to reduce your octane i think a touch she might be man take the edge off she should she could use a little reduction <laughs> if your that. idea was a flash of light you could in theory look at that flash of light through the james webb telescope like 30 years later and identify that thought out in the cosmos. Yeah, and I'll be like, I'm still right. <laughs> still right. Uh, what's going on right now, but not for you, for us in our reality and our, on our dust particle, is uh, the, the, the first like hootenanny is taking place right now. Who wants to explain mm-hmm. that? Who, which of you guys feels best equipped? I'll we, have three, we have three first light representatives here. Yeah, I can take that one. Okay. Bridget, Kevin, and This Ford. is Kevin Harlander. Kevin Harlander. Hey. Um, yeah, so we You've run been this, on the show like twice, three times, yeah, four times. I think just a couple. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah. Um, yeah, we run this thing called the Hoot Nanny every year. It's it's simply like an ambassador summit, right? Where we get everybody together preseason, go through a bunch of gear, um, talk about the future, and and just really kind of celebrate what I think is a pretty remarkable thing. We've got a great group of people um, from all of our companies and and outside our companies. Uh, talking about gear and kind of getting set for the year ahead. You know, we're right in it right now. I mean, antelope season opened yesterday here, right, Ford? The 15th. Yeah. Um, so we're in it, and uh, we got everybody up from all over the country and um, sharing some beers and some good food and some good conversation and, and kind of leading into the season here. Okay, who wants to explain what direct-to-consumer means? Ooh, Ford. <laughs> why did you, you put that on me? Well, you've been here the longest, I That's think. That's true. Yeah. Direct-to-consumer means we sell clothing directly to consumers. <laughs> mm. To elaborate. That's, that's, like, great, that's a great explanation. That's like a, I, I, that's I that's like a, totally different than that. <laughs> that's, like, that's like a big dust particle that's hard to deny its existence. <laughs> no, practically it means we don't have retailers. You can't go to an archery shop and buy... Uh, First Light Apparel, you got to go to our website, www.firstlight.com is the only place to get it. Cutting out the middleman. Exactly. Except now, mm. except <laughs> now there's a wrinkle in your dust particle. <laughs> except we've introduced the middleman. Because now there's a wrinkle in the dust particle because now First Light has its own store. Indeed. We're sitting right here and it is, it's beautiful. Owned and operated by First Light. But that's why we're in downtown Haley. You can come to the First Light. The first thing I thought... Coming in here, 
It's like, you know, I know about everything, but like to see it all, I'm like, holy cow, there's a lot of stuff. Yeah, Corinne was just saying, you know, when you look at a digital catalog on the website, you know, there's a lot of stuff there. But yeah, spreading it out on hangers and end caps and on tables, it's it's impressive to see it kind of fully merchandised. Me and old Cal were reminiscing about, um, Cal was the first, besides the two founders, Cal, uh, we'll speak to it, Cal. Oh, yeah, boy, bajillion years ago um, when when the cosmos was still forming. Um, <laughs> that's, that's your opinion. <laughs> yeah, that's your opinion. It's just like your opinion, man. Uh, yeah, as the first uh, em- employee. So they're the two founders, Scott Robinson, Kenton Carruth, and uh and myself and oh yeah towed a 1971 terry camper trailer down here to catch him uh that i was using to work and guide and kind of live out of at the time and put it in the garage at the third office space that first light had and we all worked right above it and then at the end of the day i'd go for like a light jog and then wind up back at my terry camper trailer and go to bed yeah Uh, i just i want to restate that cal lived in a camper in our office for like six months probably six months yeah. yeah and then scott got real he was very annoyed with the presence of the camper because it wasn't like hip and cool uh, and then he would get even more annoyed whenever anybody would come in the office because to a person, everybody would be like, holy cow, sweet camper. <laughs> <laughs> and he'd be like, oh my God, you got to get that thing out of here. Um, you know, I had to, had to uh, yeah, go through this gap in the fence that's not there anymore and, and shower at the YMCA or over at uh, uh, our buddy uh, Brick's office. And other than that, things were pretty easy peasy. But, uh, you know, things grew, and uh, Casey Hawks was, was our, actually it was Ross Copperman and then Casey Hawks. Um, and, yeah, so, you know, it was just like this slow incremental growth of kind of getting over these humps and um, very experimental, right? It was like, okay, if this wor- year works out, then. Like, if we do another year. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it was like that, like that for a long time. So yeah, it would start out with just Merino wool base layers. And then like a kind of joke, it was like the Ford model of like anything you want, as long as you want it in black. And it was just black Merino wool. And then, but like the secret sauce was the fact that, that really Kenton through a bunch of research and tying people together, um, through the, the power of the internet figured out how to print on merino intricate patterns like there were people out there who were putting like very basic logos on merino wool but nobody could figure out how to make something like intricate that wouldn't like bleed or eventually wash out or feel like real crap on your skin so like keep that nice soft merino wool feel still breathe but have for instance a camouflage pattern on on there so um that was a huge thing and and the sales pitch at the time was like well you've heard of smart wool we're like the smart wool of the hunting world Mm -hmm. and it was hilarious because i would literally once a year get a phone call from smart wool boulder colorado saying like hey you guys make uh, all sorts of stuff in camouflage how do you guys do that oh 
And I'd be like, what now? They'd be like, yeah, can you tell us how you... And I'm like, well, you know, we kind of compete against each other. So I, I, you know, I don't think I'm going to do that. And they're like, no, 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 no. You guys are hunters. Like, yeah, you guys aren't in the, in the, in the outdoor space. And it was mm. just a, like a weird thing. So well, you could have asked them, well, what are you trying to hide from? We, uh, we were punching out of our weight class is, is the thing. So like we were getting a lot of attention, real small company. And then, um, yeah, just that slow incremental growth. And then eventually, um, you know, right. I mean, right when, uh, you came along, Steven Ranella came along through a couple of different channels, which was really funny, um, is when we were actively working on outerwear and the outerwear was like totally against the business model. It was supposed to be this nice tidy business of Merino wool base layers. And that's it. Follow like the smart wool or icebreaker model, but strictly in the hunting space. And we learned that we were so limited in regards to our marketing budget wise and, and otherwise, because people couldn't always see your base layer. And so all sorts of people wore the stuff, but nobody could see it. And if you can't see somebody wearing it, it's like a tree falls in the woods type of thing. Or is anybody right type of thing? (laughs) Is it reality? Yeah. Um, And so that was a huge part of the push, like breaking that business model, um, you know, for the first time then uh, to get into outerwear because it, it allowed us to say like, see, you can see it. Like people are wearing this stuff and, and it's really good. And, um, it, yeah, just kind of snowballed from there. And then obviously Steve, you, uh, got in and started wearing the stuff and, and we got to start making more and addressing more needs, you know? And I feel like that's always been the backbone of the brand is versatility for sure. Like tackling a giant temperature range with, you know, relatively simple garments. Um, and then trying to address the issue first, right? Not address the marketplace, but address the issue that occurs on the mountain. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's like, well, I stink. Well, Merino wool's not stinky. What else can we do on the, in the outerwear world that would mitigate smell as well? Or, um, boy, I sweat like crazy. What can we do to mitigate, um, you know, uh, enhance breathability, mitigate, uh, all that moisture loss in your garments, keep you dry, uh, when the temps drop, stuff like that, address, address the issues. Staying warm. If you do get wet, climbing into your sleeping bag at night and being like, Ooh, that feels good. And not feeling like a clammy ass mess. Yeah. Or, you know, spending a ton of energy. And, And that's something that we learned certainly like working with a lot of folks in the military space is just how important it is to actually be comfortable. And it was a really interesting, like dual conversation that was going on at the time because we were like talking to lots of, lots of folks in the military world that were talking about comfort. And at the same time, the hunting world was like talking about being tough, but on the military side, they were like, boy, you can get a lot more done if you know, you're taken care of, like you're not wasting a bunch of energy combating all these feelings of boy am i actually going to make it through tonight mm-hmm. like boy it's sure cold boy i'm sure wet 
boy, all this stuff's chafing me. You know, so once you address that that comfort and find like those those prime ranges for um, breathability, moisture wicking, um, insulation, weight weight to insulation ratios, so you're not carrying around a bunch of superfluous layers, um, then you can really start performing beyond what you thought you were capable of because now your brain's like free and easy to just concentrate on the task at hand. And it grew on a sheep. And it grew on a sheep. Yep. Mm. Yep. The the last place you'd think to look. The extremes, right? <laughs> so like very cold nighttime temps, very hot daytime temps, and uh, an animal that isn't capable of changing its clothes. Oh, I love that sales pitch. It's so good. On the <laughs> trade, you know, on the mm. consumer show floor, you're like, well, just think about a sheep. Can it take its jacket off? Sure can. Works That's every that time. same jacket the you whole year. You show me the sheep that takes its own jacket off. They start pulling out their credit cards. Cal, what I'm hearing, <laughs> what what I'm hearing is that there should be a bronze statue of you in this store. I mean, uh, you were the third. Oh, you were the first get Cal employee. <laughs> like they could use it like a mannequin. Oh, oh boy, we still need to sell things. You know, <laughs> they got to keep the lights on, Clay. Um. But yeah, you know, it, 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 it was really wild and it, it was cool to, it was really like a work environment that was so kind of hectic and busy that there wasn't time to kind of like look outside of our, our own little world for a long time. So there wasn't a whole lot of like, what's, what are other companies doing? It was going off of uh, really like personal experience and the knowledge that we could only build in very small increments. And it was like, oh, we need, here's our need list that far exceeds what we can build year to year. So what we build has got to be really good. And it's got to address the most needs out of the gate. Uh, and I think that was a, a super, super healthy foundation to have, like very scrappy. Um, and, uh, you spend a lot of time like toiling and, and testing over, you know, what that next garment is going to be because this could be our last year. <laughs> right. So, mm. Clay, what all you been up to? Well, been, uh, been traveling a lot for Bear Grease. It really excited about some of the series and different stuff that we're going to be doing. Been, uh, that's mainly what I've done this summer, traveling for Bear Grease. We try to do in-person interviews with every every podcast we do. So I'll travel and go meet somebody, talk to them for a couple hours. No Zoom. Go home. All in-person? Man, of the 60-something episodes we've made, I've done like three Zoom interviews. Wow. Oh, you That's, lose something, man. Well done. It's it's. I, I feel like it's really important. Oh, yeah. 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 We got a, a – someone just texted this to me today, but – but but Corinne's been reading up on it too. Did you hear about this dude that those Brody, Brody sent it to us? You know when you go to a fishing access site and they got the like what they call a vault toilet, right? So picture like a like a fishing access John. So there's a there's a thing called a vault toilet, right? And it looks like an outhouse, but you go in and it's got a tank underneath it. And they'll have all the signs being like, hey, man, don't throw weird stuff down here because we can't. It's hard to pump. Mm -hmm. And in Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks, they have a very 
like their vault toilets are are, are sort of branded. Uh, you just know one when you see one. Story came out about a guy. They tracked him down. A guy in Southwest Montana who dropped his phone down in the vault toilet. So he strips down. Oh my gosh. Gets the toilet seat off there and gets down in there, but he can't get back out. <laughs> oh, you're kidding me. You know what? It's the, the thing you think and about he's got every the door time. Locked. And he's got the door locked. So they one break does. the handle off. You know, one of the crazy... No, he couldn't get out of the hole. He's stuck in the vault. You know, one of the craziest parts of that story, though, is that he can't get out, but somehow they managed to get a camp chair down in, which makes they, me think the reason he couldn't get out is because he couldn't lift himself out, not because he was wedged. No. Otherwise, how else did they get the camp chair down there? He was down too far to get a grip. So they had oh. to dam they had to break into the toilet. Passersby. He spent three hours in there. First it was like <laughs> that it was an overnight adventure. He spent three hours in there. He must have hailed a passerby. That's a surprise if you the passerby to toilet. Uh he, he still the, the weirdest thing is he didn't get his phone back. <laughs> Well, all I mean, that time he's down on. in there, he didn't come well, out with the Once phone. you finally get down there, I mean, how much digging are you really going to do? My daddy's telling me a story. Well, uh, let me return Plus, to the story. Plus, wait, I, like, I got, where do you hold, if he ditched all of his clothes, where does he hold on well, to the phone uh, listen, in order to climb out, right? You can't put it in your mouth at that point. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think this guy thought it through that much. But if he finds the phone, he can call somebody. Or, well, he's probably out of service. I don't, I don't know. I'd, have, I'd like to, if Kryn had, you that know, microphone's if a little job, soiled, he'd, man. If Kryn did her job, he'd be sitting here right now. And we'd ask him. <laughs> he climbs down into the vault toilet, spends three hours down in there with his clothes off, <laughs> apparently oh, no. hails a passerby. The passerby damages something to get, get in there. Wait, wait, wait. Can I stop you, Steve? Uh-huh. The passerby, was he going... Don't know. To use. He was knocking on that level Certainly, he knocked is, on the door. This okay. is going to turn yeah. into an Just investigative lean to the side podcast. Real quick. It'll turn investigative. I'll find please, him. Please don't. So, please don't use this right now. Um, so the pictures came out, and like the, the Montana Fish and Game, like they recognized their own pit toilet. Not only that, they recognized what access point it was at. <laughs> so someone was able to track the fellow down um, to rescue him. It was on the Big Hole River. To rescue him, they passed the lawn chair down to him. He was able to stand on the lawn chair and then get a grip on the lip okay, of the vault. Okay, so that's how it worked. And pull himself out. So you're Somehow saying he came out of there without the phone. I hate to see this say this because I, I love Montana and Butte, Montana uh, a lot, but uh, I'm assuming the dude's from Butte. <laughs> Big <laughs> Hole River. That's yeah, that's Butte Butte America's fishing river right Small there. Hole I gotta ask Big what like what shots do you gotta go get after that? <laughs> what kind of I mean <laughs> probably hepatitis. Oh, hepatitis. All kinds of yeah. stuff. Be hep, you'd probably want you'd probably wanna what is it, Hep A? And, and what's uh, the kind they don't vaccinate you for? Hep A? Ooh, I can't remember. I don't know. But it's salmonella, E. coli is all in there. I would be in the know, shower. I don't know if so the brothers long. down there eating and stuff, man. I mean, but uh, we'd like to find him. I mean, he likes to fish. Apparently, I'd love to have him on the show, and not to goof on him, not to goof on him. Well, I mean, what, how, you, what do you want to know from this guy? Well, why it's, he why he didn't find the phone? 
So, you know, like what was going through his mind. You're not as worried about when he was out of the toilet and the, I, the, the thought process that got him down yeah, in there. There'd be, three, we, there'd be three areas I'd explore. I'd explore uh, four areas I'd explore. Um, how did, I'm guessing it's obvious how it got down there, but is there, any, is there anything unexpected about how the phone got down there? Yeah, that'd be interesting. Two, um, you're making a call, right? Like you're like, you're going to do this or not do this. <laughs> So what's at stake? Why the ur- sense of urgency um, and certain decisions around that? What was the cleanup plan, right? Like that uh-huh. area. W- what were those three hours like? What kind of thoughts went through your head? And then the fourth area I'd explore in, in the interview would be um, where's the phone? Uh, you, I think you know thing- why it's pertinent is every time you use one of these government buildings as we call them there's that sign that says don't throw x y and z down the toilet it's extremely hard to get out yeah and every time you read that you have to take that mental journey of boy it'd be gross to be down there like Mm -hmm. what would it take um but there's a possibility what if this dude from butte is into like waste management Mm -hmm. right and he's just like not he's like i've done a lot worse yeah. for a couple hundred bucks type of thing. Corinne, if yeah. we put this episode together, you know, it'd be a good guest to have on as well. It'd be Kevin Murphy, who worked in waste management. So, like, we got oh, the guy. Have a great dynamic. We got the guy. We get someone yep. from the phone company. Mm-hmm. We get Kevin Murphy. <laughs> we can solve the mystery. To talk about, mystery. like, what, you know, like, what could be down in yep. there. Um, I have a vindication and in a, in a, in a major correction. Me and Cal have a major correction to make. Um, the vindication... Remember we covered we we talked extensively in Callahan you were there we talked extensively about the actor Nick Offerman's writing an article about uh bullying and aggression on this podcast. Yes. His perceived bullying Him and aggression. Him thinking that that like that like coming from a the 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 host of the podcast came from a uh um like a background of bullying and aggression. For having, for having pointed out my feeling that Henry, the late Henry David Thoreau, was a candy ass. Uh, and then we were trying to think of who was it that who was the guest because he says I jumped down a guest's throat, and you said I think the guest was Brent West. Yes, from High Peaks Alliance. Yes, a Mainer from Maine. Yep. So Brent West wrote in. So here, so now we've heard from the person that I was aggressively bullying, Brent West. Brent West says, what I don't think Offerman understands, what I think he's mistaken for bullying and aggression, is a thing called ritual opposition. And he sent me an article about ritual opposition. Ritual opposition is basically what you're doing when you dick with your friends all the time. Hmm. That if you like dog on your friends or give your friends a hard time, you're engaging in ritual opposition. And it's argued that ritual opposition is the same as hugging somebody. Mm. That it's like a necessary you, component. You're really good at that, Steve. It's a necessary component of how people embrace those that, they, that they're fond of. Ritual love, opposition, not hugging. Is you dog right. on them. Right. Like dogging on each other. So it's the he language whole, version of your Michigan hello. He sent me a whole, oh yeah, yeah. yeah. That's why like, I, I greet people by giving them the finger. Yep. <laughs> so I'm like, what's yep. up? 
What's up? Wait, hey, so you it, could... it, it's uh, it could it's also potentially cultural, Steve. The way that you manage people, like inside of like a podcast or relationships, I really think it is. I got to tell a story. Bear Hunting Magazine. I, I owned Bear Hunting Magazine for years, and one time I, I had a guy call me from the Northeast, and he was upset about something, and he was just like pretty much yelling at me, and I pulled the classic southern just like i'm so sorry blah 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 really soft with him and that even made him more mad and what i learned was when the guys from the northeast called and were upset about something you came back at them hot and they you got the problem solved real quick mm-hmm. see what i'm saying mm-hmm. fighting fire with fire yeah well i mean it was it was a i feel like it was a cultural it was a cultural misunderstanding mm-hmm. to how to get a problem solved. And, and, and I think Steve, our, I think our friend Steve runs into that sometimes. And, and you can give Offerman a, a little break here if, if you'd like and say that like uh, maybe, you know, uh, it's a secondary type of appreciation people have for you when they learn your um, opposition tactics. Well, it even goes on in this article that, that the guest sent me is um, the, the, it says... Uh, it, that it's common for men to use fighting as a way to explore ideas. I didn't write the article. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, uh, we should say uh, High Peaks Alliance. Uh, Brent there just completed a, a big bridge project on a very popular hiking trail up there. Um, so if you're uh, traveling the main big main woods, you should check out High Peaks Alliance. They do a bunch of great work. And um, I kind of personally want to thank Offerman, Nick Offerman, mm-hmm. for introducing. You got a real soft spot for him, huh? Well, what I have a soft spot <laughs> for is that line of um, where the Thoreau uh, appreciators point out that he often hiked in wet shoes. No, he, he like, so he was pointing out like just how tough Thoreau was. Yeah. And he would hike long ways, sometimes with wet feet. And I get, uh, I've and, gotten and a had, lot of... And had little use for people that couldn't keep up, which I think is mean as shit, as I pointed out on a previous episode. <laughs> but I've got, I think he's a bully. I've gotten a lot of appreciation just thinking about that line. When somebody is kind of posturing up, you know, I think to myself, I bet that guy even hikes in w- with wet feet. That's how tough they are. I, I bet he has little use for those who can't keep up. Um, here's a letter you don't want to get. Cal, I'm speaking to you now, too. This is you and me. I would like to advise you that your recent podcast episode was full of wrong information. And he goes on to lay it out, and it's this is like a bad, this is one of the worst corrections we've ever had to do. So uh, I'll skip ahead. You say you are from Michigan and an outdoorsman. But I am disappointed in your lack of knowledge. He points out. So we were talking about the Camp Grayling expansion. Uh huh. Yeah. It's not in the UP. We kept saying the UP. It's in the northern lower peninsula. Uh. So that was an error, right? That was an error. The, but the other error is he he goes on to talk about a lot of ways in which he and and other outdoorsmen have through the years really had a hard time with the presence of the guard camp there and cites these examples of people doing exercises and being uh, soldiers doing exercises and not being where they're supposed to be, conflicts on rivers, on and on. And he says, 
they say they're not going to do this and that, but they're already fixing to do these activities that they say aren't going to happen on this expanded land. What we're referring to is Camp Camp Grayling is looking to double its size. So I think it sits at around 150,000 acres, and they're wanting to add 150,000 acres of surrounding state land. What they're trying to do is they're trying to gain access to surrounding state land. I will. Uh, this is the best part of doing corrections, though, is everybody gets to learn about the issue twice. Yep. Which makes it doubly valuable. But but he uh, is very incredulous of what is they're saying is going to happen. And and part here's what part of what is feeding this issue. So the 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 the, the camp is looking to to double the size of the area they can use for training exercises. So they're gonna tr- they're gonna expand their ability to train out onto like some hundred and fifty thousand acres of state land, and it would result in no one's arguing this point. It would result in temporary closures when they're doing exercises. Yeah, they think you know, like cause for great concern, right? If their track record up to date isn't stellar, then an expansion would be cause for concern for sure. Uh here's where some of the confusion is coming from with people trying to suss out what's going to go on if this expansion takes place. So a military spokesman said, a national guard spokesman comes in and says there would be no new trails built for tanks, no bombing or shooting, no new buildings or fences. But then they go on to point out that they're setting up firing points, which they're setting up artillery areas on the new land that will be used to fire into existing areas. So you're sort of like, oh, there's no new infrastructure, but there's new infrastructure. And it's creating a fair bit of anxiety among people about this expansion. Yeah, part of the thing people don't like about bombings is the big banging noise. There (laughs) happens to be one on both ends, right? So Yeah. Yeah. So he's mad. The guy that wrote in is mad at me. He says, like, a lot of people around here have lost respect for you now, which is, that's a bummer. Uh, He says, what he's mad about me is not that I'm fence sitting on the issue. Because remember, I would like the whole point is I was saying, like, here's one of those areas where I have a hard time making up my mind. So I'm sort of like, you know, I'm I'm weighing this idea between um, that it's not a habitat loss because it's not a, a subdivision. Or, or building, Giant building a new base, right? It's giving yeah. soldiers access to forest to train on forest land. And you right? appreciate a strong military. And so I weigh that, and I weigh that it's not leading to a net loss in wildlife habitat. It just winds up being an access issue at the expense of hunters and anglers in support of military training. So I'm sitting where, you know, I'm a little torn. But he's like, I'm not mad if you're being torn about it. I'm just mad at you for having your facts all wrong. Sure. Sure. You said it's a hundred and fifty thousand acre expansion. Yeah, and the, the camp has lot. been the camp had the camp originally had a land grant, then they've done these series of state leases. And this individual, I don't want to I don't want to go through them all because mm-hmm. I might make the same mistake again and not fact check or everything, but this individual goes through like a whole litany of issues, even things that have made the local T new uh TV news. We're saying just recently there's a group of soldiers who went down the Manistee River on a raft with a machine gun at the front on an area they weren't supposed to be. It even made the local TV news. Um, many inc- many incidents over the years. Yeah. So uh thanks for writing in. It's good stuff. And and for clarification, it's not 
It's on the upper lower peninsula. The northern lower peninsula, he points out, it's the, uh, you know. Like tip of the mitten. Fred Bear country. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Hey, man, it's a struggle to find time to manage one's finances. It's a struggle to find time to manage my finances. You go through like a busy week and the last thing you want to do is spend time budgeting you know your expenses and tracking down customer service teams to cancel old subscriptions you're paying for that you don't use but now you use rocket money and does all of that for me i'll tell you this this happens all the time in our family because like something will come out that we want to watch and they lure you in with a one month trial and you're like oh you know i'll I'll do the one month trial then i'll come back and cancel then i can watch this whole thing and then like you don't you forget about it, and then, and then a year goes by, and you've been paying these guys 12 bucks all year and never watched a single thing. This finds that stuff and gets rid of it for you. Rocket Money is a personal finance app. It goes in and finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions. It helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings instead. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions saving members up to $740 a year when using all the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. That's rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Again, rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Spring is a great time to do something with your family. Do some spring cleaning, which I kind of started today outside. Planning outdoor activities, which I'm always doing. Taking a little trip to Hawaii with your kids for spring break, which I just did, which was great. You know what else you can do for your family this spring? You can shop for life insurance with Policy Genius. Make that part of your financial planning for the year. I've said it before a thousand times. I'll say it again. When my wife and I, when we started having kids, we got serious about life insurance. And man, I felt so much better after we did. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just 292 bucks per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Even if you already have a life insurance policy through work, it may not offer enough protection for your family's needs, and it may not follow you if you leave your job. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com. Or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. The single most valuable tool I have for chasing turkeys next to my scatter gun is the Onyx Hunt app. If I'm hunting turkeys, I'm using Onyx. If I'm not hunting turkeys, I'm using Onyx. I'm always using Onyx. I live by that stuff. I can't tell you the number of birds this app has put me on by allowing me to easily find new areas to hunt. It's invaluable. I use it all the time. Even properties I know super well. And I'm at my buddy Bubbly Doug's house. I'm using Onyx, and I've hunted this place a million times. With their compass mode, I can pinpoint exactly on the map where a gobble rang out from and then figure out the perfect spot to set up. Meaning, if I'm sitting there, let's say I'm at Bubbly Doug's, and I'm in the navel, and I hear, pow, I'll like instinctively pull up bubbly doug's place on on x and i'll look at the topography and i'll be like oh that sucker must be over in that little opening over there waypoints also and the ability to share them okay comes in handy every spring whether that's revisiting old waypoints where i've been on birds before or sharing them 
to buddies to help put them on birds. This app will help you find more turkeys. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you, too. Use code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt this turkey season. Uh, here's another thing that comes up. We were, we were recently discussing what it's like to, to spearfish in 15,000 feet of water where you're just occupying the surface lens. And we were musing about um, there's stuff at the bottom and there's stuff at the top. But how boring would it be if you were in 15,000 feet of water and went and hung out 9,000 feet down? Who's home? And the answer is nobody. Really? For for the for the most part, <laughs> nobody. It's like there's not something that specifically lives at that. There's stuff that'll touch it. Death. A sperm whale can get down to eight or nine. But yeah, you're in a you're you're in an area. But it but it brings up that, that we were talking about. There's still you know the deep deep. Cal's gonna talk about this new thing they found. Yeah. So in the deep 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 deep. In the deep, 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 deep. And Ford, what, what we're talking about is, is that layer at which sunlight ceases to penetrate. And in that zone, there is essentially no life that that hangs out there that we're aware of yet, which it is... like bases its operation there. Right. Well, what are we talking... Life-wise, what size life are we talking here? There's got to be something Oh, like there. big stuff you might catch There's in the fishbowl. There's something, bowl. but oh. life transitions, <laughs> right? They'll chase, something they'll chase some maps. To, uh, <laughs> like, it's stuff that is waiting for for things to fall to the, to the, to the very, very bottom. Um, and uh, there is a type of snail that was... Uh, discovered and the fun name is a pangolin snail because it's got these it looks like a pangolin's like you know scaled armor oh yeah on its foot but it's it's part of this family of armor footed snails and it's a great example of it, it would be called like an extremophile so it hangs out in an area that is what every other form of life would consider not hospitable. You can't can't live there because the temps exceed like 525 degrees. There's sulfuric acid. There's all these gases. Um, it is an extreme place, hence extremophile. And uh, this little snail with the iron the iron foot is uh, really really bizarre because how it eats is it holds a chemical compound in its throat and by basically breathing in the toxic water around it, that chemical compound reacts with it and it's able to extract its nutrients from, you know, whatever spits out of that compound. And then I'd like to slide your tongue down that snail's throat. Mm. But it's just like life. I've never heard of anything Mm -hmm. that, that's how it exists, right? No, it's amazing. And, and 500 degrees Fahrenheit. Wait, why is it so hot? Down well, there? because it's going to be thermal cold. Vent. Yeah. Oh, right, right, right. It's a right. thermal vent. Yeah. At what temp down there does do you start getting close enough, right? Like that you're in thin parts of the crust where water starts getting warmer again. Well, right? that's oh. like beyond warm. Yeah, right. But at what point is it like water's not 34 degrees? Now it's 
60 again, 70 again, you know, oh, grading, like yeah. getting warmer again. Oh, you're looking for like a banana belt down there, basically. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's mm-hmm. where I want to go live. Mm-hmm. That's where you got a deep drop. Uh, he, yeah, but this... <laughs> throwing what, maps what, around. What's crazy about the snail, too, is... At, so it's got this, like, scaled armored foot, and, it, and they thought it was protective. Did you get into this? Yeah, they thought it was protective, because, of course, it looks like armor. Yeah. Right? Um, and I guess, in a sense, it is protective, but it's like a reactionary... It, it protects against itself. It basically, like, you could call it the drool that is the byproduct of its feeding comes out, and it would, and it contains sulfur, which is um, a very common compound in, in how you kill snails in the garden. Um, and in order to protect itself against this sulfur that comes out. To protect it from its own breath. From its that own breath, so its own drool. Wild. It's grown these uh, kind of iron plates on its foot. How big are we talking here? God, it looked fairly big. That's a great, great question. About 50 cent piece. 50 cent piece. Yeah. Mm. Um, but it's like we know so much about the world and we know nothing about it. Like there's these whole host communities that are based in these super specific um, little climates at the very, very bottom and crushing depths that we're just discovering right now. And, and, uh, yeah, I just think like, what, what, what could we harness that for in a good way? My kid recently asked me how many animals that there are, we don't know about. And it told me it'd be hard to count. It's <laughs> <That's laughs> yeah. a great question. That'd be hard That's... to count because we don't know about them. Right. You gotta wonder what uh if Spencer starts running out of pardon my plate things, if he could go on a little deep D- dive. D- yeah, season <laughs> season five. <laughs> season, yeah. season five. It's like, hey, well, Way ass deep. Yeah. We've tried the nasty sea duck, so let's start trying sulfur filled snails. Giant clams. There's all <laughs> sorts of stuff down there. The vent. Uh here's another one for you, Callahan. Uh anti venom. A person wants to revisit your experience when your dog got zapped by a rattlesnake. Yep. So the, the question is, he's going to be hunting sharpies in Montana this fall. He's nervous about snakes, hasn't encountered them. He says he hears the anti-venom is a waste of time and money. Yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, unfortunately like this is a part of veterinary medicine where yet you're going to have a bunch of folks that agree with you and a bunch of folks that go like, "Yeah, but it's your dog." Um, so there's no antivenin is this cocktail of venoms from common snakes. Um, for instance, the one that we used on snort doesn't even contain the venom from the great basin rattlesnake, which she was bit by. Um, but she had an incredibly positive reaction to the antivenin and I'm very glad that we used it and we used it at a time at which, most people, even like the pro anti venom people, would be like, "Yeah, it's not going to help." So it's late, basically, in the in yep. the process. Yeah, earlier the better, is is the golden rule. Uh, and we used it at the twenty third hour mark, I think twenty second or twenty third hour mark, oh, and saw wow. yeah almost instantaneous positive results. So um, I had been on the phone with uh, several vet friends of mine um, when I did get cell service. And they all said, you know, like they, they weren't there witnessing the situation. They weren't 
uh, they were definitely like listening to me, but also going off of their past experience of, you know, in general, Labradors do not die from rattlesnake bites in general, right? Um, don't, you know, the dog's going to be very uncomfortable. Don't worry about anti-venom. Um, she'll make it. You and know, it's not going to be pleasant, but she'll make it. And they're saying that body mass wise? Because I always heard the smaller dogs more likely to die from rattlesnakes or poisonous snakes in general. Larger dogs better off. I think that that's definitely a rule, but it's just like dogs are face level with snakes, you know, from the beginning of time. Oh, yeah. And they're just built to handle that stuff way better than than we are. And I, I brought up this case from a human that had been bitten in the same region and he ended up spending like three months in the hospital and I think lost at least a portion of his leg. And I was like, well, what about this guy? Big, big football player type guy. And, and the vet straight up was like, people are sissies compared to dogs. Like it's not a fair comparison. Do you know that hunting guy in Arizona, Lee Hop? You ever met him? I have not, no. Yeah. Got bit? Well, yeah, but I mean, first off, that guy knows his biz. If you're ever in the hunting guide business in Arizona and need a hunting guide, that guy knows his situation real well. Yeah, he got zapped by one, spent time in the hospital. But he's like, it's like you say most dogs don't die. 98% of the people that get bit by a rattlesnake don't die. Oh, yeah. I would have thought it'd be so much higher than that. Not Say that again. 98. 98% of people that get bit by a rattlesnake don't do not die. Die. Oh, but yeah. have y'all have y'all heard me talk about my friend Fred Lally that's been bit like twenty? Like he can't he doesn't even know how many times he's been bit by venomous snakes. Oh yeah, he was on bear. Yeah, Greece. that was mm-hmm. that, that was, was yeah. fascinating. Now he was a snake handler. He's been bit by king cobras, uh, multiple types of rattles, all the rattlesnakes in North America, and uh, a couple of venomous snakes from Asia. And uh, he likes it all. He, does does he, he take anti-venom, or does he man, feel like he's built up a oh, resistance? Fred Lally. He's 81 years old. He's missing a big section of his hand, and uh, he he would not go to the hospital for a for a common snake bite. For a king cobra or something, he probably would, but wild. I appreciate you sharing that, but, what, but, but, but tell me more, like. Well, I just we're just talking about antivenom. He he doesn't he most of his snake bites he never went to the hospital. I just, it was just a cool. I just have a friend yeah. that got bit twenty times. That's all. Oh yeah, I had a friend that got cool bit story. by a rattlesnake, and he went to the hospital, but they didn't have the antivenom, so they put him on a helicopter and flew him to another town, and he wound up with a nine thousand dollar bill for the helicopter flight. Uninsured. Did they give him the antivenom or did they yeah. eh, pass? They took, him, they no, took, they him, took him to Billings and hit him with the antivenom. Yeah. And the, he said the real stinger was a $9,000 helicopter ride. I haven't talked about it with him in a long time, but he was pointing out way back then that he was still trying to like sort that whole thing out. Yeah. All yeah. the money he owed for that. I, uh, yeah. But uh, to stick with the antivenom, um, I, you know, I mean, it's your dog. You got to make, make the decision and you can see uh how they are reacting to the bite um i think snort either is has a a strong reaction to rattlesnake venom or she got a lot of venom 
And the thing that you will always come to, no matter how many vets you talk to, is they do not know how much venom is administered. Like, it could be a mm. dry bite, quote unquote yeah. dry bite, where there is very, very little to, to zero venom injected by the snake, or it could be a crazy huge amount, and it's just like an unknown. Well, I always heard along those lines with snakes, the babies are more dangerous because they can't moderate the amount of venom they deliver. I have no idea if that's real, but I've heard that pretty consistently through the years. Yeah, I've, I've heard that too. And I, I know, I think there is a, a study that's kind of gone through that. And I I think, uh, I probably, I shouldn't even comment. I think there is something to that, but it's like not as as uh, black and white Cut as and we dry. would wish it would be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kel, I want to get into one. Um, I don't, I don't know if you've been following it. It's, it's a it's a tough one to get into. The the hunting closures in Alaska. It's like yeah. it's like you'd have to do like an eight hour special on this thing. But we're gonna do we're gonna it's not gonna we're not gonna do that. No, we we need need to find some experts though because I think you do you want to summarize this? Yeah, I'm gonna summarize. Okay. But I'm just trying to think of where to begin. With the with with one of the Russians were <laughs> came to Alaska. So, oh my God, enough people that like, I, I, I like, we, we covered another version of this before, but I want, I want to get into this, this news item from Alaska, um, kind of a troubling news thing, a troubling thing that keeps happening in Alaska. So I have often, um, I have often explained how I am very supportive of federal land management agencies. I think there's a thing the feds do well. I think the feds do land management well. Um, uh, they, with, with you know all the land management agencies we have, the National Park Service, I don't hang out on that stuff much, but it's there. Bureau of Land Management, I hang out a lot there. USDA National Forest Lands, ha- hang out a lot there. Uh, National Wildlife Refuges. National Wildlife Refuges, okay. Bureau of Reclamation. Yeah. Um, yeah, they have some of the most. Vi- the Bureau of Reclamation, as we now know, has the most. Some of the most. Th- no, not some. Has the, the most, most visited public lands in the country. Is that because of like reservoirs lakes and reservoirs? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. they have. They have the most visited piece of public federal public land in the country. Makes total sense. Administered by the Bureau of. Yeah. Or they, they or no, I think they have the most visitors. Oh, it makes total. So that'd sense. be like your Lake Powell. Yeah, uh, yeah. Right. Lake of the Ozarks, Missouri, yeah. like places like that. Amazing right. pit toilets. What makes what makes federal <laughs> land like in they my always have a ladder to get out. Well, the one we're talking about, we, we covered earlier. Yeah, we, we covered a state pit toilet earlier, and look what happens in there. No escape. Yeah, no escape bitches, and there's no ladder. <laughs> they don't even put a line for you to grab. So, what, what, one might be like, well, why would the feds be good at land management? Uh, I, the, the feds are good at land management because they're. Um, they're more immune to the to they're immune to some of the whims that take over at the the state level and they have a different financial structure so we have well-funded federal land management agencies and they can manage lands they can manage public lands in perpetuity what happens at the state level oftentimes the states have a lot of pressure to monetize land right so many times States will have state land, and it's in the Constitution that the state land be be monetized, not long-term, but short-term, monetized for short-term gain, right? 
Um, you might have states that have state land and it's such that you can't spend the night on the state land or you need a special permit to utilize the state land or the state land gets leased out for livestock grazing, which means then that the public has no access to it. Conversely, if the Bureau of Land Management land, uh, leases livestock grazing on a chunk of land, that doesn't affect the public's ability to hunt on, camp on, use the land. Um, the multi-use doctrine that the, you know, the multi-use doctrine with, um, our national forests is like, is like a beautiful doctrine where they're saying we have this land, we're managing it for many uses. Some of it's wildlife habitat, some of it's timber extraction. Uh, we have pieces of land that they've managed for well in excess of a hundred years. Uh, a lot of wonderful land management comes out of there, but I don't think that the feds do a very, uh, their talents expire when it comes to wildlife management. That's my personal opinion with the exception of things that are legitimately like, like in, things that are on the endangered species, you know, things that are listed on the endangered species act that are legitimately endangered. Um, there are some great federal protections to help recover those things. But when it comes to the management of fish and game species, that is a state game. State, they do it best. That's my preface. You take objections to any of that, Cal? I'd be, you know, there's exceptions to everything, right? So I'm like, well, migratory birds. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right? and that's a wrinkle yep. because no state gets to manage it on their own, right? Right. And, uh, but let's, I can let's, imagine. Let's explain it'd be why they get to do why do Why does the feds, okay, let, let's look at this for a minute. Mm -hmm. Sean has brought up the great exception. Ducks and geese. So migratory waterfowl is managed at the federal and state level. Why? Because they move from state to state. Right. So you can't have one state say, let's say Louisiana. Yeah, Louisiana say, you know and Texas. <laughs> from now on, we're going to have it be that ducks are always open and there's no bag limit. It's our wildlife. Right. Which would completely screw everybody else. So you're boning everybody else on the flyway. Mm -hmm. So in that case... There's federal oversight. Well, I'll point out another great example. Halibut, because like on the Pacific, so mm -hmm. on our Pacific coast, halibut move around. Halibut yeah. are managed not just at the federal, state, state, federal, international level. Because we have treaties, same way we have waterfowl treaties with Mexico. Yep. We have treaties with Canada about how we manage our halibut. So you're right. There are cases. Yeah, but it's like... It's not a clear cut and dry case with migratory birds because you don't know what it it, it it doesn't even exist that it, there would ever be like a state management versus federal management. We have nothing compared. There's to no that. comparison. No control. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This is all just a preamble to try. It. I'm just trying to lay a little groundwork. Yeah, yeah. For what's going on in Alaska. In Alaska, you have these federal subsistence boards. Okay, so. Let me give. I'll, I'll give you like a little tidbit about Alaska that isn't gonna, um, that doesn't actually have anything to do with what I'm talking about, but it's just interesting. Uh, Alaska, it, like at, at the highest levels, when it comes to the allocation of natural resources, like fishing game resources in Alaska, at the highest level, when it comes to allocation, they look at it like tiered use. Okay, top tier use is subsistence, right? Mm -hmm. So that the subsistence user group and subsistence has nothing to do with your income, like like. 
to be a subsistence user in Alaska, for the most part, has nothing to do. You could be, you know, uh, 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 tells his name. Doesn't want to buy Twitter. Elon, <laughs> Elon Musk. Musk. <laughs> Elon Musk could move to Kasan, Alaska. He could move to uh, wherever, Arctic circles. But Elon Musk could move to certain Alaskan like zip codes. And he would become a subsistence user based on his location. Okay. So it's not doled out by need. It's doled out by location. Hmm. Those subsistence users are always like going to get, they, they eat first. Next is, is, is the next that eats first is commercial. Okay. So subsistence commercial, really recreational eats last in Alaska. Um, that's just like a high level view on resource. Yeah, I didn't know that commercial, yeah, commercial came over Trumps. recreational and commercial will trump. If someone's gonna give up, if something's getting pared down and someone's gonna give up, it's gonna be recreational. So hunting would be recreational. Well, not if you're, but not wait. If you're a subsistence hunter. Yeah. But I mean the type of hunting we would do. Oh there. yeah. Very yeah. Okay. You're the low like like we're the lowest of the low. Yeah. We're non-resident. You're, you're like non-resident recreational, which people are like, dude, everything is a luxury. Yeah, you're non-resident. Yeah, it's like, you, no one cares. <laughs> Wait, just no to, one be, cares. But to be clear here, there are in-state recreational users, right? Sure. Yep. And, <sighs> and the way it typically like subsistence is defined is, is by typically if you have to travel some amount of distance, like you're not a subsistence user, which is something that's been, been fought over greatly yeah, in the state but, of Alaska. And even that's crazy. So for example, we'll, we'll just get into it's it. Huge. Yeah, no, this, it's huge. I, I feel like I want to argue about this before we even get into the well, story. Well, I haven't even gotten to the point yeah. yet, mm. but, but let me tell you, another, right. let me tell you another <laughs> interesting wrinkle. Okay. Let's say, uh, let's say you're a federal, you're federally qualified subsistence user. Okay. So let's say you live in Southeast Alaska and you're a federally qualified subsistence user. You can set a 30 hook long line for halibut. Okay. Just based off your zip code. Yep. If you're qualified federal subsistence. Yep. So based on your, where, based on where exactly you live, right? You might qualify to set a 30 hook long line for halibut which are federally regulated okay now if you live in anchorage but you go to this area where you're allowed to set this 30 this 30 hook long line you're not allowed to because you're not a federal subsistence user however if you live in downtown you could live in a mansion in downtown anchorage and travel to a place that has state subsistence regulations, and then you can fish under state subsistence. So you can go and role play as a state subsistence user. So if you're in Anchorage and you travel to an area, in, let's say Prince of Wales Island, you live in Anchorage, you go to Prince of Wales Island, you may not set a 30-hook skate, a 30-hook long line for halibut because that's a federal federally regulated species and you're not federal subsistence you can however set a 100 hook sablefish long line because even though you can't do it where you live in anchorage you are now acting as a subsistence user where you are but if you catch a halibut on your long line you must let it go hmm. let me give you another one 
you are, you live in a mansion in Anchorage. You go to Prince of Wales Island and you drop your rod and reel down. You are allowed zero yellow eye rockfish and one other species of non-pelagic rockfish per day. If you leave your rod at home and go out with a hand line, you go to the same spot, same bait, same hook with a hand line, there is no limit to how many non-pelagic rockfish you can wow. have in the boat. Because you're using subsistence tactics. So two things. A, I'm confused. Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> B, I, I feel like when I go shoot an elk, I'm subsisting off the elk. I'm not going to buy meat. I'm yeah, going to eat it. But you can't get into like, imagine the world. Like I support all of this, I want to point out. But imagine that you had to, um, if you're a rural resident in Alaska, you don't need to go prove how bad you need it. It's just where you live. And, and, and here's the, you go back to statehood, a, a wrinkle with Alaska, even like accepting statehood or wanting statehood was the ability, like historically, socially, culturally, like we are people who live off the land and they need to be able to be that, that people in rural areas in Alaska can have a way to live off the land. How it came to be that you can go to an area that you don't live and vacation there and use local subsistence strategies. You'd have, to, you'd have to ask someone else how that ever came to be a thing. I don't know. Is there any way to get even, into the? the are we, uh, yeah, uh, go ahead. I'm gonna leave it with like a heavy pause. I need to think it over. Quite so, a bit. You, so it's your the main, main is the main thing in life that I think about. Is there <laughs> anywhere even close in the U.S. with as stringent and complex of game laws? No. There's nothing even because comparable. they're they're managing like a dozen big game animals. They have yeah. like think of how big they. I mean, it's think a of huge all place. the different fish. Species. They got a mountain range the size of California. It's like yeah, they're they're managing all those big game animals, managing a huge commercial industry. You have subsistence people. You have native Alaskan villages where people have historically lived off the land. It's like it's it's. Well, there's 27 yeah. game management units which are divided and then divided again. It's it's complex. Incredibly, and, now and I'll point out, and they do. Land. I, and I feel that they generally. I, I feel the state of Alaska, if, like I feel the state of Alaska, generally does like a phenomenal job mm -hmm. sorting out all this complexity, all these user groups, and you know, their wolves aren't on the endangered species list. Their grizzlies aren't on the endangered species list. They have an intact regime of megafauna. Mm -hmm. They got good salmon runs. Yeah. But they now don't. it could be like, well, they got lucky. Okay, they haven't blown it. Yeah. But now we need to talk about uh, some What's going sheep oh. that are not doing so well. But we're not there yet. Okay. There's a thing that happened in the Western Arctic, around the Western Arctic caribou herd, and this oh, is very yeah. contentious. So th these are places like I've been to and hunted places in the Brooks Range that a few years back, and we covered this a few years back, um, the Federal Subsistence Board came in and overrode what the state wanted to do with their wildlife management plan. And they made this thing where non-local, so not, not even subsistence users from other places, they made a mm -hmm. thing where they took this huge quadrant, basically like a quadrant of Alaska, the Northwest quadrant of Alaska, and closed it to non made it illegal for non-locals to hunt caribou in 
some of the you know remotest like mathematically remotest parts of the North American landscape. Um, it was cited as being like resource conflict, okay, because there was competition for resource near villages between locals and non-locals. And however you feel about how that might sound, it was not what the state wanted. And the state felt that there's no reason to even argue that that's necessary. This thinking has now spread. There's an area, so everything west of the Saga, it's a hard river to pronounce, and I've canoed down it and whatnot. The Saga Venerktok River, folks call it the Sag. Um, some of the only, not the only, one of few places that you can go and you know, one of the few places you can go in Alaska and, and uh, hunt doll sheep and really good doll sheep country from the road system. There's a handful of spots. It's hard. People do it every year. It's, it's hard, but this is, this is one of those spots. Um, they've had some brutal years on sheep. Uh, sheep numbers are way down. Now, the Western Interior Alaska Subsistence Regional Advisory Council just managed to close doll sheep hunting for all users on one point million acres of land against the recommendation of the state. How many acres? 1.8 million? 1.8 million acres of land. And Steve, that board, does that where does that sit? In sort of the federal hierarchy. Is that U.S. Fish and Wildlife? Yeah, is that like a... Or is that its own whole thing? It's part of the Federal Subsistence Board. Is the Federal Subsistence Board based in Alaska and like made up of people making decisions that are Alaskans? Or are they sitting in Washington, The Federal Subsistence Board represents federal subsistence you federally designated subsistence users in alaska yeah so it's a, it's a local board okay it is so and, by and they're broken yeah. out into regions but in this case you have the state biologist saying because here's the wrinkle with doll sheet management it's a full core these areas have a full curl restriction a, a ram isn't going to hit full curl till he's eight nine years old he's going to die when he's 11 so they've had some bad winters that really hampered sheep. The state is saying our management plan, it doesn't matter. Like it, it they're killing about like within in one of these areas, one of these archery areas, they're killing about five mature rams a year. A lot of people get to try. It's very low success rates, but they're killing about five rams a year. They don't even have a fresh survey. It's it's like it's anecdotal what people are seeing. They're seeing a, a they had some rough mm. winters, sheep numbers are down. The state, whose job it is to do this kind of thing, is saying there's like sheep numbers are down. Hunting mature rams is not going to affect sheep populations. Yeah. We're not killing ewes. We're not killing lambs. You're killing mature animals that are that are arguably at the end of their life. It has no impact. But then the the, the Fed comes in and says like no more sheep hunting on 1.8 million acres of land. Screw your professional perspective. Through 2024, it said. And what's their impetus? What's their motivation? Like, if, if we were to try to speculate, or they did some, they say why? Someone feels, well, like, there were some bad winners, sheep numbers are down, and someone feels that somehow or another, not killing mature rams... Have five adult rams. ...is going to help rebound sheep numbers that state biologists feel, and, and not just that, 
The Wild Sheep Foundation is against this. Like everybody's coming out against this. And it's just this alarming trend. It's this alarming trend of, of you have a professional agency that has a, a like an amazing track record of managing big game and imagining a a, a disparate ba- a use a disparate user group who now like outside of any kind of scientific reasoning or any kind of scientific understanding, people are just sort of like coming in and making these like extremely arbitrary, massive closures, shutting out hunter, like mm-hmm. shutting out hunters on areas, like, like almost on a whim. It's like whimsical. Uh, I, I, so the, the, the survey that the data is based on is a 2012 survey. Um, there's 25% of, of that 2012 number left in the current population is what what they're saying so it's like it is an alarming drop population wise since 2012 um when i first heard of the closure my gut reaction is like oh that finally happened because at places like sheep show i've had conversations with outfitters who have told me you know eventually this is going to get shut down because something is going on with the sheep population. Now, well, it's uh, very hit, anecdotal. But I'll hit some added wrinkles. Well, let me let me finish this. So then when I got around to reading about this, after my gut reaction of, I was actually quite surprised to get the state that the state was, I assumed that, oh yeah, that thing is finally happening that I had heard about years ago at this point. And so I was pretty surprised that, that the state of Alaska was not in support of. Um, but the it sounds like there's a, a gap in uh, current data. Well, here's why it's a little here's why it's a little unfair to lump it in with the caribou, like the caribou moose stuff in, in the in the Western Brooks Range. It becomes a little bit unfair because uh there it's like it's being closed to non-local users here they're closing it even to subsistence users because people can hunt sheep on like like local federal subsistence people can hunt sheep outside of the full full curl restriction so if you were really trying to stop harvest you might go in and say okay we're going to stop harvest the the federal subsistence users are going to stop harvest because they can shoot ewes and lambs or we're going to change the regulations around the state is the, the state, their use of non, their non subsistence hunters who have a full curl restriction shouldn't be getting rolled into this. But it's like, well, if everyone's going to take a hit, if someone has to take a hit, everyone will take a hit. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, kind of akin to, I don't know, what pops to mind is like sage grouse, right? Where it's like, we know the grouse are getting beat up from a bunch of different factors. But we also know that hunting isn't one of those factors. Like it doesn't factor into like the long-term uh, viability of these populations. Yeah. Um, and we need hunting around in, in order to A, gain data, B, keep some public interest on, on this bird because eventually we're going to need to get a bunch of support to help this thing out and oh, figure yeah. out the facts. That's kind of like right. one of my big axes to grind right now is the death spiral of sage grouse participation. Yeah. Oh, you know what's funny? I felt uh, the the one concerted effort I made to hunt sage grouse, and we did an episode about it. 
it was right when they everybody was still celebrating <laughs> the they came up with these great compromises in the in the in sagebrush country so oh, yeah. sagebrush sea you know areas of wyoming northern colorado portions of idaho they came up with all these great compromises they had this stellar sage grouse recovery plan put together the secretary of interior at the time was it sally jewel at the time she was when it was completed it was her um they announced that esa protection is not warranted oh, and yeah. it was kind of like esa protection is not warranted because y'all have put together an adequate plan to avert disaster oh a huge kumbaya moment you know, huge kumbaya everybody was excited and it was it was sort of like the, the they were rewarding the plan by not doing it and then they just i mean uh elements of the trump administration just like wholeheartedly ditched the plan totally just ditched the plan yeah but in those sort of like halcyon days of thinking that the plan was in place i went and hunted sage grouse and felt yeah. weird doing it oh yeah I actually went back and watched that episode at some point in the last year or two during said obsession with sage grouse. And I remember being like, oh, man, that sounds great. Oh, no, that didn't happen. It, Son but, of a bitch. But it felt weird to be like, hold on, a minute ago, they were going to declare it an endangered species. Yeah. But now that they didn't, we're going to go hunt for them. Like, how do you explain that to a five-year-old? But it was funny because so many people in the sage grouse recovery world were welcoming and encouraging hunting because they're like we want public participation in the resource and it's ne it's a negligible harvest like the hunter harvest doesn't matter oh yeah what matters is habitat loss fence strikes all these other things um but it did feel funny yeah yeah i don't want to derail the conversation i can talk about sage grouse a lot but sheep Th felt weird sheep but with sheep, sure, you'd be like, okay, sheep numbers are way down. They're 25% or whatever. Does it feel funny to go hunt a full curl ram in that area? I'd be like, it does. Like, that full curl ram doesn't matter. The biologist would tell you to shoot it. It doesn't matter. Did you know Rocket Money can cancel a subscription for you? They'll even alert you when there's been an increase in a subscription price and negotiate rates for you. I can see my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with just a few taps. You wouldn't believe how many people are paying for subscriptions they don't use. This happened to me. It's annoying. This helps you find it out and get rid of it. Well, Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions and monitors your spending and helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. That's rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. The single most valuable tool I have for chasing turkeys next to my scatter gun is the Onyx Hunt app. If I'm hunting turkeys, I'm using Onyx. If I'm not hunting turkeys, I'm using Onyx. I'm always using Onyx. I live by that stuff. I can't tell you the number of birds this app has put me on by allowing me to easily find new areas to hunt. It's invaluable. I use it all the time. Even properties I know super well. And I'm at my buddy Bubbly Doug's house. 
I'm using Onyx, and I've hunted this place a million times. With their compass mode, I can pinpoint exactly on the map where a gobble rang out from and then figure out the perfect spot to set up. Meaning, if I'm sitting there, let's say I'm at Bubby Dugs, I'm in the navel, and I hear, pow, I'll like instinctively pull up Bubbly Doug's place on, on X and I'll look at the topography and I'll be like, oh, that sucker must be over in that little opening over there. Waypoints also, and the ability to share them, okay, comes in handy every spring. Whether that's revisiting old waypoints where I've been on birds before or sharing them to buddies to help put them on birds. This app will help you find more turkeys. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you, too. Use code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt this turkey season. Hey, I'm excited to share our newest sponsor here on the Meat Eater podcast, which is Poncho Outdoors. The reason I'm excited is I buy their shirts anyways. I don't, I don't I, listen, man, I, I rarely go into stores to buy clothes. I like to, I just buy myself online and I love their shirts. Max that I work with, Max Bard, who comes on the podcast one day. I don't know if he sent me a link to this place. I went on and bought some shirts. Dude, they make some good shirts. And they even have an option where if you're like a skinny dude, you can click like the skinny dude thing and get like a whole different cut of the shirt. It's great. Based in Austin, Texas, Poncho is committed to crafting the world's best outdoor shirts for men. They got it started out with a lightweight fishing shirt. Now they make all kinds of other lines. Western, denim, flannel, corduroy. Better fitting. Not, not all baggy. Better performing because they got modern fabrics with some stretch and breathability and way comfortable. Poncho is only sold on their own website. So head over to ponchooutdoors.com. Use code MEATEATER for a free hat or t-shirt with any purchase of a shirt. Poncho offers free shipping and returns so you can try them out risk-free. Well, quick question. When you said subsistence, subsistence and sheep don't go together in my head. Well, you need to go. You need to go read uh, Stephenson's "My Life with the Eskimo." So they're killing a lot of sheep. Somebody's killing a lot of sheep. Well, I mean, historically, I mean, people have. Have you ever read okay. Osborne Russell's Journal of a Trapper? I have, but that's mountain sheep in the lower yeah. forty-eight. Well, that's it's, different. Just, it's interesting because one spot in that book he talks about oh, yeah. when they're living off bison, they yeah. got where they couldn't find any and decided to go winter way up high in the mountains. Yeah, so they could hunt bigghorns. You know, I kind of got a piece of that recently. I was tickled. We did a, a buddy of mine got married on the main Salmon River, and we did a you know week long trip, and we saw ten x as many sheep as we saw deer. And I was like, holy shit! It's like we're in the good Wilson. old days. Yep. It was awesome when he used to see four or five hundred on a hillside. Oh, yeah. We didn't see that many at all, but right. but still. isn't but, that funny? Like that was a super stable and common food source for people who weren't. Uh, quote unquote in sheep shape, right? Oh, yeah. It was like, oh, I gotta go get some food for <laughs> That's the a big mining camp tonight, cow. right? You don't know they were in sheep shape. Uh, <laughs> it was like Cookie going out to slide some meat underneath the were. the tarp, you know. This in, is the last. They certainly didn't comment. have ergonomic boots with like really nice insoles. In my life, true, <laughs> true. In my life with the Eskimo, which was written in the early 1900s, he talks about. Native Alaskans who live in the high country, the Brooks Range, all their clothes are white, all their blankets are white, that they live off sheep. That is badass. Yeah. Well, it's kind of the sheep eaters in yeah. central sure. Idaho, very yeah. similar people. They're, they're, there's folks they that, were definitely sheep shape, as a se- side note. Yeah. <laughs> Seasonally and otherwise would just be doll sheep specialists. Yeah. Didn't so they? there's there's definitely a subsistence component to it. It's just 
and, and you know, no matter what you feel like, like being a guy that doesn't live in Alaska, I'm, I'm like a tourist there. You know, we, we have a shack there, but we're not you know, anything but anything but locals. Uh, I'm, I'm like a person that loves the place. And I kind of recognize where it's my business, not my business. It's not my business. And it's carpet bagging. <laughs> However, it's alarming. I know it's alarming because it's a broad. It's like I just hate to see people's. I hate to see people's hunting and fishing privileges stripped away, especially when the agency, like when a trusted agency manager, is saying this is unnecessary. Well, it definitely feels a little grizzly bearish to me from the Northern Rockies. There's mm-hmm. a little bit of a yeah a tinge of. Federal. We don't know anything about the. I'm sorry, Ford. We don't know anything about the. The, the motivations of the actual people that made this decision. I mean, they, were they getting pressure? Was there political pressure? Was there? We don't know that. Well, we, the, just, we just know the rules. For every decision that's that's like on the docket, there's like a public comment period, right? So, like, I guess their constituents, for lack of a of a better word, can call in and you know kind of give their opinion on the matter. Um, but that's you think they made this decision based on that? That's that would be the hope, right? I mean, that's the way the system's supposed. Like the each member of that board is supposed to be representing not just their own thoughts. Yeah, but you know, people are people. So remember that Depeche Mode song. People are people. Oh is God! It, yeah, uh, but I, you know, you know it, I, it hurts, right? When they use broad strokes. I guess. Wow. I guess what I'm getting at is like some of the some of the grizzly bear stuff and British Columbia, and you see different places where, for sure, like, like an anti-hunting agenda or, or some agenda outside of the conservation management space. Yeah, it's like is it's pushing ugly. people to make decisions. This is yep. probably not that. So yeah, so that's a great point. We'll, we'll, uh, I'll touch on that real quick. The decision not to hunt doves in Michigan. Is is nothing to do with biology. It's social tolerance for killing a symbol of peace. Okay, so right, right. it was advertised as like a dove is a symbol of peace. How can we allow hunting of a symbol of peace in this state? And people voted it down many years ago. Nothing Wait, to do with nothing to do with dove populations. You in can't shoot doves in Michigan. No, but they're delicious. <laughs> Couldn't for forever in Iowa. Yeah. I don't think you can still. But uh. another example be grizzly bears in the northern in the northern Rocky ecosystem it's not a biological thing it's a social thing like people they can't stomach the idea of killing the bears it has nothing to do with the, the number of them or the viability of the population in this case the stuff in the wet in the in the western brooks range with the caribou moose it's about wanting to protect my own and you have people who you have local on the ground individuals who have a mechanism by which they can keep a resource to themselves and not have competition from other people coming in and disturbing that. And they utilize the mechanism. It's like, I don't think that they would come and tell you it's anything, but it's anything, but like a selfish desire. And then when we, you know, initially talked about the caribou closures, we, we tackled that. Right. And it's like how it's like, if you had the ability to uh, close down your favorite hunting unit to just just the folks in your community in order to relieve the pressure from non-residents or folks outside of that county, would you, you know, hit yay or nay? Yeah, like let's right. say you have a let's say you have a river access site. You have a river access site and there's comp- and there's conflict between floaters and fishers. So tubers, moms taking their kids swimming, 
Um, people who just talk loud. Yeah. Those people. Mom's taking their kids swimming versus mom taking their kids fishing. And they and they all get in a fight. And then and then some agency comes and says, okay, the only way you can use this river access site is if you're fishing. Done deal. No, no, no talking. Half the people are gonna be like, sweet. Yep. Mm-hmm. And I'm just gonna be quiet about it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. When I came into the brand new first light store, I couldn't help but notice. I couldn't help but notice a large display hmm. right off the bat first rack in first rack in of an unusual assortment first light waterfowl wow. <laughs> wait we need like a drum beat or some other whole build up who, want, who wants to talk about that you don't like that build up tell us Sean or whoever who wants to talk about this Sean's the most legitimate duck hunter here, so and he I should think start. The most passionate yeah, too, yeah, everybody knows Sean from Sean's Duck Report. I mean, oh, I, just for <laughs> do you get email, I, Do you get emails about Sean's Duck Report? Uh, mo- some emails, probably more Instagram messages, but a lot emails, of corrections, or, or helpful stuff. Um, yeah, usually just like kind of added on things, like okay. you know, here's something else I want you to do a duck report about. A lot of that, a lot okay. of like, you should do a duck report on this. Um. Back to the rack. When you first come in the store, um, we're working on, have been working on for quite some time, something that another thing I've been getting all the Instagram messages about and oh, been yeah. real tight-lipped about is uh, new First Light waders. They coming. Which is by far the product I'm most stoked on and most pumped about. Like our launch this year, first light waterfowl stuff was fun and cool and all good stuff. But, you know, there's a reason that my Instagram messages and emails were flooded with. So are you guys going to do waiters? Uh, when are the waiters coming? Tell me about waiters. Are there waiters? I don't see you in waiters. But oh, yeah. we've been keeping it. Even tight. from a non, you know, a non. <laughs> Pretty tight. Yeah, trying to. Even I'm getting emails about that, and no one knows who I am. You know, <laughs> Instagramless forward. Oh yeah, I mean, just hey, so I'm trying to buy waiters this summer. I know you're not going to tell me, but should I buy waiters this summer? And I'm like, <laughs> like wink, you're right. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes. yeah. Don't like, blink if First Light's coming out with waiters. You're yeah. like, summer's a hot time for waiter buying. One. So let, lay out like what what is the full what what is the full waterfowl like what all is available currently yeah so and, and, and why like why the timeline you know well I mean what we have out right now is a smattering of existing first light products that make sense as waterfowl products with additional design pieces I would call it a heavy smattering yeah yeah I, yeah, I yeah, yeah. okay fair but like we have right all the first light wool for sure. That makes sense as waterfowl gear. Warm and, and then, wet. And then in addition to that, like we have the refuge collection and the ground control pack and the LZ and things that are waterfowl specific and designed for waterfowlers. But, um, you know, of course, one of the things that all waterfowlers use and need is waders. But waders are, they are probably the most demanding product. Like they are the thing that's hardest to get right and takes the most time to get right. And I mean, you're expecting something to work both as a like beating through the brush, breaking through sticks and ice, and also being impenetrable and waterproof. (laughs) 
play. For You're long periods of time. Yeah, for long periods of time. More than a day. It's oh. a bit of a bit of a unicorn, I would <laughs> yeah, say. Yeah, it too, reminds you know? me back in the day when I first started working the first like working the phones, I used to get to call and it's like, I'm looking for a jacket. It's insulated, it's waterproof, it's breathable, and it makes you invisible. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, pause. Please, well, yeah, yeah. My response would be like if you can make that jacket, I will buy it. From I'm not you. Superman. Yet. We don't currently stock it, unfortunately. But it's I, true with waiters; it's similar. You kind of needed to do damn near everything. I think what deals more death to waiters than anything on the well, I, barbed wire fences deal. Barbed wire fences are brutal, but beaver chewed sticks. Beaver dude. Chewed. Yeah. 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 People don't realize oh, how yeah. hard beavers are on waiters, man. Oh, they're excellent punji pit yeah. makers. Little punji sticks yeah. all like over. Eighth inch of ice, man. Mm-hmm. Like that is like just kicking ice for decoys. It's hard. Right at the top of the boot. Oh, especially when you're in that shell, like the shin yeah. depth mm-hmm. stuff where you're using your shin yeah. to chunk up ice. And that that is the cool thing about these bad boys, right? Yeah. Because these are not your normal oh, yeah. waiter. No, no, no. These waiters yeah. are, they're the real deal. They're well, serious. And if you put beaver proof on the label, I feel like people might not, they <laughs> oh, might think that mean attacked yeah. by a beaver. Yeah. Uh, right. We could just make a sweet little logo to put on the outside. Beaver chewed stick proof. Just yeah. an angry beaver. Uh, when I was, I used to have this uh, Chevy pickup and we put, uh, I, we, I ripped the exhaust out and put cherry bombs on it <laughs> as one does mm-hmm. and just straight pipes out the back. And, didn't cut the straight, left the straight pipes a little too long. And I one time uh, on the, so I'd be like messing around, reaching into the back of the truck, trapping with my waders on, in and out, in and out, in and right. out. And I remember standing there and smelling something and burned a hole <laughs> through, burned a hole through the right leg of the waiter, right above the knee on that straight pipe. And then later the day, that day, the same day, Burnt a hole through the other waiter on the left pipe. <laughs> I've burned matching, <laughs> like matching round exhaust pipe holes. Cutouts, basically. And each right. waiter. I have done that not on a pipe, but on sunflower heaters on those real mm-hmm. cold days where you're like, I got to get as warm as I can. And you hug that sunflower heater in the blind just a little mm. too close. But these, these waiters are, you know, I not, it's like a, it's just a thing. It's a fact that I go, I don't know how I destroy waiters in the way I do, but last year, I think I was on my sixth pair of waiters by the end of the season. I was going to say, man, you get you spend more time returning waiters than you do in your waiters sometimes. Yeah, seasons. you need to get yourself a patch kit, man. I used to, like, I used to be able to go through a muskrat trap in season well, and fewer waiters than that. And I, I will say, like, when you're on the road as much as I was, it was just like those ones leaked. Now move on to the next set. Yeah. yeah. But, and by the last duck hunt of the year, I made Clay wear, <laughs> yeah, wear holy waders. He's like, do these waders leak? Because I'm already wet. It's like, dude, this is the last thing I had left. I only had one pair of waders. Yeah, he told left. me he was gonna take care of me. We were gonna we were gonna hunt, and he was like, man, I got I got you some sweet waders. I mean, this is Sean. <laughs> This is Sean Weaver from Ducklore. And, you know, to, and the to be fair, like I gotta be clear here. These are not first light waders, right? Because right, we were right. filming Ducklore. And so I had to be wearing waders on Ducklore that weren't first light waders because we weren't 
showing them yet. But on all the non the cameramen were wearing them. Yeah, yeah. The camera guys got the, to wear like the best waders. I all was season. super jealous because I'm wearing these huge <laughs> baggy waders that leaked. And then the camera guys were wearing the first lightweight. All sleek. Yeah. See, uh, uh, that kind of pisses me off a little bit. <laughs> hey, so you're, 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 you're tiptoeing oh. around that these are, these are designed to be super tough. And, now, and, and so when I was with Sean, I, I, don't, I didn't know much about waterfowl hunting. And I just like in private. So this is, this is a look into our private conversation in private. I was like, tell me the truth. Are these waders any good? And, I mean, Sean was kind of upset about just life in general, so I was waiting for him to just be like, man, they're okay. First lights, you know, it's okay. Yeah, this is after my boat broke down yeah. again. And and he he gave a glowing review and right. said, these things are going to, like, change the waterfowl market. Oh, yeah. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, that's well. It's good to hear, Sean. Oh, in private, yeah, which means something. What, what we're missing here right now is is the – Pitch. Oh, are are they neoprene waders? I want to tell my, wa- my, wa- my waiter shitting story. But do they have on. pockets? Are they zippered? <laughs> yeah, like these aren't shitproof waders. Do they have no, boots I got a great attached story to them? For you. Do they not have boots attached to them? What are they? Oh yeah, you can tell us anything. Let's tell. I I think we just leave it. Leave it with. We had I think eleven guys on that testing trip in Arkansas. I mean, we were really we were getting reps on these Rolling things. Deep. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, I and didn't. Sean was there. I wore them all year off camera right or had camera guys wearing them all year off camera but but we circled up at that camp or after that camp in arkansas and i i'm pretty sure all 11 guys said it was the best waiter they'd ever worn and i did have critiques to be fair it's not like they came out of it's not like i was like yeah great job everybody these are perfect waiters but we we made some changes over the summer yeah and got them right where they need to be i think yeah Mm -hmm. here's my waiter shitting story (laughs) With that, <laughs> yeah. So we used to fish the St. Mary's River, which separates mm-hmm. uh, um, Michigan's Upper Peninsula. <laughs> I'm positive, <laughs> <laughs> allegedly. It's not the northern Lower Peninsula. So when, uh, if you imagine Lake Superior, Lake Superior sits, I don't know what it is, 23 feet higher than uh, Lake Superior sits 23 feet higher than Huron. Is that it? So there's the Sioux Falls, and there's mm-hmm. a lock. The Sioux Locks goes around the Sioux Falls, so the iron ore boats and stuff can come and go. But anyways, where it spill, it sits some feet higher, goes through the Sioux Falls. And there's this river called the St. Mary's River, which is basically not basically it is it's Lake Superior draining into Lake Huron. Um, and this river's wide, wide, wide. You and me ran it in a boat together. Oh, yep. Pre nine eleven, um. You could just buy a book of bridge passes, two bucks a piece, and you would go over, and the people, the the customs people, would just get to know you. I mean, we'd fish sometimes. We when I was going to school at Lake State, we would sometimes fish three, four days a week. On the Canada side, you could keep mm. more fish. Um, so we'd go over there. You, I'm sorry, you catch more fish. Yeah, fishing the Canada side because you could access the rapids. Okay. So the U.S. side, you had like a bunch of the locks. You could go over and fish sort of like a more natural riverscape coming from the Canada side. So we'd cross all the time. And in the when the pink salmon ran in the fall, the water would be pretty low. And if you were a bold wader, so we would uh, get cleats, you know, corkers. Mm-hmm. If you had like felt boots and then put some corkers on them, we had 
me and my buddies, we had like routes that you could get way out into the river. Mm. And it'd be, you'd cross here and then you'd go up a hundred yards and go out and then you'd go down 200 yards and go out a little more and then go on a cockeyed angle. And yeah. And you'd wind up like way out there fishing fish that people didn't fish at. And one time we get way out there and I don't want to say who it was. My buddy all of a sudden has <laughs> the need. Yeah. He's got the gurgling. He's got to go number on. two. Mm. This is after a long night at the bar. Oh, the and he's kind of yeah, in this situation it. of needing to weigh what to do because now he's got an hour invested into getting out into the oh, pink it was sand. Like that serious of a walk to get out there. It was not. A, it was no joke. Yeah, it wasn't in fact, minutes. people would people that didn't get it would kind of like marvel at how one could get out there. But you're like, well, you, you know, mm-hmm. you figure out how to get out there. It was just a dicey walk. Yeah. So he had to shat his waders. There's <laughs> nothing else he can do. And just kept fishing through kept, it. He fished through the whole thing. Well, that was a strong, Boy, that takes strong man. <laughs> that takes fished, the waiter farts thing, you know, when yep. you take your weight. That takes sure, it to man. a new level. Fished through the whole thing. <laughs> gets back to our house and uh, drives back with us with his belt mm-hmm. on there and yeah, gets back very and tight. goes up and into the shower. Yeah, smart guy takes his waiters off did he there. keep those waiters i'm sure he did there's no yeah. way because that, that was another thing what got me thinking well, yeah, about yeah, that what got me thinking about that is back when none, like you know growing up not having any kind of money it'd be like you'd look at your waiters like how you look at your car like if something happened to your yeah. waiters you'd be like how how will i ever recover yeah <laughs> do you know what i mean yeah yeah, yeah. It, like like life would end it'd be like if you broke your main rod mm-hmm. it'd be like well <laughs> What so, am I supposed to do now? <laughs> yeah. Like when your waiters went, dude, you were done. Mm-hmm. You were going to yeah. go buy another pair. No, so which is a, a testament to why, like, I, I do think that there is a lot of waiters out there right now that are pretty pricey and the quality has just gone to crap. I mean, there is a, there is a brand of waiters where in the last two years, I quite literally the first week of using them, just a seam pops and start leaking. Like has nothing to do with a puncture or anything like that. And, you know, that's always the, that's the most common thing that fails on a waiter anyway, right? It's the seams. They're just bad seams, bad work, bad tape job. And you get Mm -hmm. that leaking in the crotch, Mm -hmm. right? We've all had it where you, all of a sudden there's a day where now your pants are wet right in the crotch for no reason. Had nothing to do with you shatting in your waders and had everything. (laughs) Had everything to do with just crappy waiters. And we went into this conversation early as a team looking at trying to solve the major problems that Sean's just describing, right? So the the first thing on our mind is let's make these the most durable thing that has ever been introduced to the to the waterfowl world. And that's kind of that was our I would say like our mantra going forward. Like mm-hmm. how can we break these and showcase that, you know, this iteration didn't work. Let's move on to the next thing. And pretty pretty proud of them. And the other thing about them for all the guys down in Clay's country that wear waders every hunt is they'll come in a timber camo. Mm-hmm. Mm. Which is a fancy new detail. Mm-hmm. A new timber camo. A mm-hmm. new timber camo. That we can't talk about. That no. We, <laughs> we'll leave it at that. <laughs> it's, can we say it? We could say it's sweet. It's yeah. sweet. Yeah. Can also I ask you guys problem. how long you were, you spent developing until you like got it to where you want? 
because this is like a long time coming, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah two and a half years. Yeah. Um, I forget. I mean, Typha, I feel like, was like 11.6 or something, iteration-wise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Typha being our current waterfowl camo that we dropped this summer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've been screwing around with the waders myself for, well, over a year. Yep. Not oh, yeah. just me. And it's, you know? yeah, it's, it's been longer than that. And I think sure. what's interesting to realize, too, is like, waders don't just like, come as waiters, right? There's like material selection and all these things where we spend time touching, feeling, trying to break. Um, and Logan Williamson, our, our waterfowl product manager, has been in it for, you know, two plus years, you know. So, oh, and it's worth saying we've got a, a pretty sweet partner lined out. That's putting right. Putting those things together. Yeah. You want to mention that one? You do that there, Kevin. Yeah, yeah. So we've been working with... Uh, company called lacrosse which i'm sure you're familiar with <laughs> little little little, co- little company over in western oregon um who is uh as a company obviously not uh new to the game of of rubber boot development and things like that so um without saying too much the the construction and sort of the development of this um specific boot for these waders is uh far and away the, the best thing i've put my foot in yeah it's, not, oh, e- it's yeah. not even like it's yeah. not even in the same realm no as no boot. it's like we're talking like new materials new construction a different way of looking at heat retention a yeah. different way of looking at breathability yeah. like the whole bit just the ability and, to like go into a room and say like what is impossible and how can we make it for days know? on end last year like by design on mm-hmm. purpose stood in the water you know 35 degree water for seven eight hours mm-hmm. straight with no way to get your foot elevated and out of cold icy water like skimmed over water and you know because of my own poor layering decisions end up with a cold core cold thighs but warm feet which yeah. just doesn't happen shockingly no. warm feet yeah. Sho- like that was a big takeaway from that mm-hmm. that's that's one of that my favorite testing parts trip. of the whole thing but yeah the whole waiter yeah is that boot that's great one's drop date Ooh, tentative we can't be that specific. <laughs> <laughs> it'll be available in about a year 23 at some point, eh? But what you can do right now, watch this transition, but what you can do right now is come down to Haley, Idaho and come to the new First Light store. Check it out. One and only on the planet. Mm-hmm. It's really cool in here. It's I told them that they need a, a duck that Sean killed hanging in here. You know, I've never, got a, I've never got a duck mounted, taxidermied, mm. so. Stuffed. Stuffed. So <laughs> should get the first one put in here. That'd put it cool. in here? Mm-hmm. Uh, all right, we're gonna wrap it up because we're gonna do trivia. Yeah, nice. yeah. How do you guys feel about it? Trivia or like, do you, have you ever listened to one of the trivia oh, yeah. shows? Uh, I've been practicing up. Do you feel like you're gonna win or lose? Oh, definitely not gonna win, but I'll I'll hang in there. How, how, how have you been practicing? You know, Tommy Edson. I'd like to dude, know just reading trivia. encyclopedias. Yeah. Tommy Edson, after he came on and played with us, and he's a strong player. His the guys at work call him the blue collar scholar. <laughs> <laughs> I was shocked at the turnpike thing. Like y'all didn't know what turnpike troubadours were. There's like two of you. That shocked me. On the last, I one think I that was to. Clay you know and who, myself. Uh, Robert Keen is. Oh yeah, Ray Wiley Hubbard. Yep. You know. Oh yeah, Waylon Jennings. Absolutely. Are we okay. trying to make this generational right now? <laughs> no, I'm just saying. Like, was, I just thought like turnpike was, was a thing. thing. It was said by the first light crew that they would think Ford is good, so now yeah. Ford's oh, really? got yeah. some pressure Ford, on Ford You know what? When I things. when I don't know something and someone points out that I don't know it and they kind of want to tease me about it, I always remind them that there's probably a lot of things I know that they don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that is so mature. Yeah, got him. Got him. Right. Back. Do to you the, even really know? Like, it? You know I, I don't want to name them all, but there's probably a lot of things I know. <laughs> 
about you don't it. know. Hold on, Steve. Do you actually... <laughs> Great comeback. Do you actually fact, know it? tell me your favorite topics. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I'll come up with a few. Why don't you take you, a seat uh, here? <laughs> do you actually know it, or is it just your perception of a dust particle? Well, yeah, like oh. my, like when I look at my oh, particle with in. the sun coming through, oh, it, it shines man. bright and clear to me. Yeah. Can yeah, I just like, uh-huh. intercede quickly? My gut reaction throughout your whole description of that philosophy about not understanding anything about life just makes me think of their nihilist Donnie. <laughs> oh, yeah. It is. It That's pro- what I was it, thinking it, it the whole that. first five minutes of the The other day I was, this is the last, this is the honest God last thing I'll say. The other day, Seth and Chester, who are frequently on the show, both happen to have Hawaiian shirts on. And I informed them. <laughs> Wait, where of, were you? In Hawaii or? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know. <laughs> just, just we we wanted to get clear. them some shirts. We wanted to get them hats and said Howley. So they had their Hawaiian <laughs> shirts on. And I was trying to explain to them about the uh, what the, the Boogaloo movement. <laughs> oh yeah, the, it's like a nihilistic. It's like a. It's like a. Remember nihilist? It, it's like a nihilistic uh, militia group. What's it? Yeah, what are they called again? They, it's the Boogaloo. The, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the world's gonna. And they wear Hawaiian shirts. Right. While, and I was like, saying, I carrying. would think when I saw these guys, I was like, I'd think you guys are like here from the the Boogaloo movement, <laughs> and they had no idea what I was talking about. I think that got old Chester feeling a little self-conscious because later on in the day, do you remember this? He he came up to Steve and I and he said, you know, um, some local guys uh, kind of gave me the stink guy and I think it's because of my Hawaiian shirt. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, that dude ain't Hawaiian. No. He must be boogaloo. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like... And Chester's like legitimately one of the nicest people on the planet. Kind you human. Know. You're like, oh. Kind human. All right, so... Check out the First Light store. Come through Haley, Idaho, if you're if you're passing through. Check it out. Um, stay tuned for these super waders mm-hmm. coming soon. Full line of waterfowl apparel. Um, anything else? That's good. Oh, Bic lighters with the First Light logo on there. Calcine Olsteg Bic lighters. So if, you, if, you run, <laughs> if you're a smoker or just someone who likes to start campfires, come by and get a, a, a genuine how, Callahan lighter. How about lighter. an outdoors-oriented person Cal, you know that the, always likes to be prepared? You know mm-hmm. what those are called, right? You got a, they got a lighter in one pocket and a, and a knife I still call the them other. cigarette lighters. I can't think of what else to call them. Well, these are called first lighters. Oh, Jeez, that's good. Oh, how did I not realize that? Hold on, I can't, I can't take credit for that. That already happened. That's pretty yeah, good. That was not my idea. Well, I bet I've come up with a lot of good things. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot. Hey, if you follow wildlife news at all, you're probably aware that the island of Maui has an incredible abundance of Axis deer, so much so that they're causing ecological damage. Well, Maui Nui venison is thinning out some of those Axis deer herds and delivering venison sticks and fresh cuts to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I Venison.com. Use promo code MEATEATER for 20% off your order. Sport Dog is the most recognized brand in the hunting dog training industry. The Sport Dog promise to consumers is simple. 
gear the way you'd design it. Every product Sport Dog builds is meticulously designed and rigorously tested in the field, ensuring it withstands the toughest conditions you and your dog may encounter. I've used that Sport Dog collar in different temperatures. It just doesn't stop working. Get 20% off your first purchase using code MEATEATER. So go to www.sportdog.com slash meateater to learn more. 